0: The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. So if you were to come up and say to me, Brad, you're going to die one day. I thought I'd start the sermon on a light note. Uh, Brad, you're going to die one day. And when people look back at your public ministry... What do you want them to say? What do you want people to say about the public ministry of Brad Brown? Well, gosh, you know, I don't, I don't really know. That's a difficult question. Uh, but I do know one thing. I know that I wouldn't want it to be what John says about the public ministry of Jesus in our text today. Did you catch it? As the evangelist looks back on the Gospel of John, on the public ministry of Jesus, he can only make a very sad conclusion. Unbelief. Rejection. They did not believe in him. Some, some did believe, but the majority did not. And John even said this at the beginning of his gospel. He came to his own, and his own people did not Receive him. We've been journeying through the Gospel of John, and today we reach the end of the public ministry of Jesus, the end of his ministry. And in the remaining chapters before the trial and the crucifixion, Jesus devotes himself to his own disciples. And the next time that the crowds will see him is when they are crying out for his death. And, you know, as you look back on Jesus' public ministry, he had done so many signs to reveal his glory. These miraculous signs whose purpose was to bring about belief hasn't brought about widespread faith in Jesus. Not even him raising a man from the dead. From all... His signs and the explanations of His signs. He had revealed the Father according to the Scriptures. Yet, so much unbelief. And in false belief, belief that John has showed isn't true faith in Christ. Now, uh, imagine with me. You can imagine how this widespread unbelief Unbelief among the Jewish people would have been a major stumbling block in John's day for people to believe in Jesus. How could the prophesied king be rejected by the majority of his own people? Do you you feel that? The people by whom and for whom the prophetic scriptures were written could... Could Jesus really be who he said he was? Was he really the promised Messiah? So much unbelief, it really looks like Jesus is losing. Even today, it can so often look like Jesus is losing. So in the time that we have this morning, I want us to see... That as we move towards the crucifixion, John reveals that the suffering and the rejection experienced by Jesus in his public ministry and on the cross was not some unforeseen disaster. Rather, it was the foreordained and played out in fulfillment of God's will with the full knowledge and participation of Jesus. Did you get that? All my note-takers, it's my thesis for the day, if you will. In the time we have this morning, I want to see that as we move towards the crucifixion, John reveals that the suffering and the rejection experienced by Jesus in his public ministry and on the cross was not some unforeseen disaster. Rather, it was the foreordained and played out in fulfillment of God's will with the full knowledge and participation of Jesus. And we need this word today, church. I need this word today because this word gives confident hope to those who have believed in Jesus and calls those who have rejected Jesus to repent and live under his gracious rule. So first, John reveals that the rejection of Jesus at the cross was not some unforeseen disaster, but rather the plan of God to bring salvation To the world, the plan of God to bring salvation to the world. And he does this by taking us to two texts in Isaiah that speak of two servants rejected by the people of God. And I want us to look at both of these texts in Isaiah today. Let's look at both together, starting with the first one Isaiah 53 1. John quotes it. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, Isaiah 53 speaks of our first servant, the suffering servant. Now, a little background on the text of Isaiah. Isaiah. In Isaiah, the people of God are under his judgment. The people of God are under his judgment for their rebellion. Yet, yet he has promised a restoration for Israel that she could never bring about for herself. And this restoration is not only for Israel, but also for the world. Salvation for the world but this restoration this salvation that Isaiah speaks about we see in Isaiah 53 will come about in a shocking and unexpected manner through a servant through a suffering servant rejected by his people In Isaiah 53, we see a suffering servant who will not be recognized for who he is and what he is doing. He will be despised and rejected by his own people. He will even be rejected to the point of death. He will be led like a lamb is led to the slaughter. Yet, this is Isaiah 53 too, it was the will of, of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Alright? So we, we see two truths. Rejection and oppression of the servant, of the suffering servant. And the plans and purposes of God. Right, right next to one another. But We also see this in Acts. In Peter's not so very seeker-sensitive sermon after Pentecost in Acts 2. Peter says this, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Did Did you catch that there? According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, and then right alongside that, Peter says you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men human rejection and guilt and responsibility right next to God's sovereign sovereign purposes both are lifted up before us this is this is not some version of determinism and this is not God as a clockmaker God that just creates the world and then takes a step back and watches everything unfold. No, God's sovereignty lifted high before us in the scriptures and right next to it, human evil and guilt and responsibility. No one can point the finger at God, no one can blame God. It was carried out by the hands of evil. Man, it was their schemes and their purposes, and yet it was the purposes and the plans of God. And in our text today, John takes Isaiah 53.1 and applies it directly to Jesus. Who has not just listened but heard his message? Who has not seen the powerful works through his signs that revealed his His power, the answer, not many. It looks like Jesus is losing, yet in the rejection and the defeat, God is revealing his power, working all things according to his purposes. Church, maybe it looks like evil is winning this morning. And when it looks like evil is winning and it seems like God is nowhere to be found, be assured it is in those moments that God is near and he is working in ways that you and I cannot see and may never see. Is it dark for you this morning? Is it dark for you? Think about the darkness of the cross. Think about the darkness of the cross and the power of God. That's our first text from Isaiah. Our second text from Isaiah that John uses to show that the rejection of Jesus and the cross was not some unforeseen disaster, but rather the plan of God, is a challenging text for us this morning. It's a text from Isaiah 6 where we see the second servant of God rejected by his own people. Isaiah, read along with me in verse 39. Verse 39. Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes And understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Yikes. You don't see that on any coffee cups, do you? Haven't heard that be anyone's life verse, right? Yeah. What's going on here? Well, I'm sure that some of us this morning are familiar with Isaiah 6, Uh, Isaiah's glorious vision of God in the temple. Isaiah has this glorious vision where God is revealed as a king on a throne, dressed in a robe with his attendants, and the seraphim serving him with covered faces, they offer continuous praise and and worship, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. It's a powerful and beautiful scene, one that captivates our affections. And I And Isaiah, in this vision, he sees his sin and the sin of his people, and and God provides atonement for his sin, and then God asks, who shall I send? Who will go? And Isaiah says, me, and I'm reading this text, and I say, me, and the bridge of all the poor and powerless comes in my head, and I'm pumped, and I'm ready to hit the streets and kick in the gates of hell. And in that excitement, I fail to read the following verses. We may be familiar with Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6, but are we also familiar with his message? His message in the next verses is revealed. God commissions Isaiah to preach a message that will dull the people's minds, it will stop their ears, and it will put plaster over their eyes his public ministry will only result in rejection his message will only harden you know let's just say isaiah is not going to get invited to any evangelism seminars here's his ministry that god has given him and this is the passage that john quotes here Now, a couple comments about this passage from Isaiah that I want us to look at this morning, all right? So first, when Jesus Christ comes to humanity, he comes to his people in line with the prophets and also in fulfillment of the prophets' message, When Jesus comes to his people, he comes in line with the prophets and he also comes as the fulfillment of their message. So the response to Christ's preaching that we've seen throughout John is seen as part of the struggle that God has with his people that we see throughout the Old Testament. As they rejected the prophets, so will they reject him. But his rejection... And crucifixion is also the climax of that history. It brings that history to an end. All right, bear with me here. In Isaiah 6, the prophet was commissioned to harden Israel until the exile was complete. On the cross, Israel's exile will be fulfilled God will fulfill it by pouring out all his judgment on the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. I think that's why John places these two passages here. First Isaiah 53 and then Isaiah 6. Israel's exile is coming to an end. God's wrath is being poured out on Israel, but it's not on Israel it's on Israel's representative. It's on Israel's king. It's on the coming Messiah. It's on the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. It is poured out on Jesus. And because that wrath that is meant for Israel is poured out on the faithful Israelite, salvation has not only come to Israel, but to the ends of the world. To the ends of the world. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim, hallelujah, what a Savior. This is not unexpected, God is not out of control, rather he is fulfilling what he said he was always going to do, even when it looks like he's distant and removed, and removed, That's first. Secondly, these difficult passages from Isaiah echo what John has repeatedly shown throughout his gospel. These difficult passages from Isaiah echo what John has repeatedly shown over and over again throughout his gospel, that no one sees a response to Jesus unless they are taught or drawn by God. No one sees a response to Jesus unless they are taught or drawn by God, unless their eyes are are open to see. Yet, right alongside that, this in no way diminishes human responsibility or guilt. Yet, right alongside that, John professes that it is Jesus who must open eyes. It is Jesus who must must soften hearts. I like what one theologian said about this passage as I was reading. I thought it was very insightful says, in John, Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness, the one whose presence illumines those who have darkened sight. Paradoxically, that same glory shines like the noonday sun, blinding those whose eyes have long been adjusted to the darkness. Think about the Gospel of John with me. Jesus has come to his own people, but not even they can comprehend his glory, his royal identity, the glorious and unexpected appearance of Jesus as the suffering servant reveals that humanity in and of ourselves lacks the capacity to recognize God when he comes to us, doesn't it? We have a vision of God, and it's not Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. I think it looks more like a mirror of ourselves. He must open our eyes to see his beauty. Yet this in no way diminishes human responsibility or guilt. We are to respond. We are to believe. We must hold both very high. And then finally, the last point I want to make about this text that a lot more could be said this morning is that the revelation of God's glory specifically through the humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus is also the cause of rejection. Let me say that again. The revelation of God's glory specifically through the humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus is the cause of rejection. You see, his own people cannot see his glory. But did you hear what John said? Isaiah saw it. He didn't miss it. Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus. What the heck does that mean? What's going on there? Well, Isaiah foresaw that God would be pleased with the suffering servant who was raised and lifted up and highly exalted, but at the same time was pierced for the transgressions of his people and bore the sins of many, one that was rejected by his own. And yet the glory of God was... Revealed, But that is not the king, once again, that we expected or we wanted. The rejection that we've talked about so much already in this sermon, John explains it in terms of glory. He says that in the text. Verse 43. They loved the glory of humankind more than the glory of God. They loved the glory of humankind more than the glory of God. Now, in 2005, the sociologist of religion, Christian Smith, and Melinda Lundquist, Denton, published a now well-known study of the religious lives of American youth. A study published on the religious lives of American youth. And they found that many American youth across religions and traditions, I think that's significant, including Christianity, really believed in what they called moralistic therapeutic deism. Wow. I mean, band name. That's intense, right? Moralistic... Therapeutic deism. Um, it's, it's kind of a pseudo or pop Christianity. That's basic message says, God just wants the best thing for you, and the best thing for you in life is to be happy and healthy, whatever that means for you, to, to find yourself, to, to feel good about yourself, and be nice to others, because good and nice people will go to heaven. That was the overwhelming results across religion that they found in their study. And can I be so bold to say this morning that that may sound nice, but that's not Christianity. Um, there may be a Jesus in mind, but there is no Jesus on a cross there. It is not the Jesus whose glory is revealed through rejection suffering. It is not the Jesus that says to follow him is a complete uh, death to self, a complete reorienting of your goals and your priorities. You see, here in our text in John, these believers that are spoken of, these, these crypto believers, they want a Jesus in their own image, a Jesus that demands nothing, They think they just see Jesus, but it's just a mirror of themselves. They want the honor and glory that comes without sacrifice, rejection, loss, and suffering. They do not want the glory of Jesus because they seek approval and acceptance from others and not God. And because of that, they have these huge blinders over their eyes. They can't really see who Jesus is. They just see the beauty of themselves in their own purpose, in their own goals. And Jesus is not a God. He is just another idol to give them what they ultimately want, the glory of men that points to themselves. And even though they've seen a glimpse of the beauty of Jesus, they reject him. They reject him. But John shows in the midst of such rejection of Jesus that he is not losing. He is not losing. The rejection of Jesus, the widespread unbelief, is not some unforeseen disaster, but was always in God's purposes. God is ruling, God is working to accomplish his redemptive purposes despite what we can perceive or see, despite statistics. Despite what it feels like in the moment he is working. Despite the evil that is seen, he is working. Now, this truth gives confident hope to us who have believed in Jesus. And at the same time, is a call for anyone to come and believe. And embrace Christ as Lord. Both things are held up. So first, this revelation gives confident hope to those who have believed in Jesus. Confident hope to those who have believed in Jesus. If I can be honest, not that I haven't been being honest, i if I can be vulnerable, let me say that. I might regret this. But this word from John, this word has been a warm blanket to my soul this week. I confess that at times the unbelief that I see in the world, the rejection that I see in the world, in Birmingham, in my family, it's paralyzing to my faith. It, it shrinks my vision of God. It makes me question his goodness. And in the darkest moments, I question the power of Jesus. And this week, because we brought in the second string, I get this text. And I've read and reread this text and God has shown me I have such a small view of him. He has shown me that I am so fickle. I am so prone to base my vision of who he is on my circumstances, on my limited perspective, and he has told me again and again and again that he is good he is good he is good he is sovereign and that there is no situation that is beyond his saving power the question for us is will we trust in what we cannot see will we trust in what we cannot always see Because Paul would remind us in 1 Corinthians 2 that the power of the gospel to transform lives is not dependent upon circumstances or a person's history or statistics or the church's ability to perform perfectly, but it's from the Spirit of God who can soften the hardest of hearts. The hardest of hearts. I've... I've used this example before, but I was floored when I heard that the New Testament scholar, Craig Keener, who is absolutely brilliant, reading his commentaries is like reading an encyclopedia. I mean, this guy was, he was reading Plato at 12. I mean, it's just stupid. Like, how does that even happen? He's brilliant, and he became a Christian because of two fundamentalist street preachers. What? If I would have seen that scenario happening, brilliant, burned, atheist college student walking up to two fundamentalist street preachers, I would tackle the street preachers, and I would tell the guy to run, right? That is not the situation that I see much hope in. But Keeners, he reflects on this, says, in the midst of their at times very wrong presentation i heard that jesus christ died for my sin and he said that stayed with him and he could not let it go and that led to conversations and he became a believer the spirit of god the power of the church and the gospel to move in the hearts of those that hear that jesus is lord God is moving. That is good hope for me. It is not dependent upon the intellect or the ability of Brad Brown to get it right. Thanks be to God. So if I am to trust in something this morning, it will not be my fickle emotions or my limited perspective, but rather Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that raised him from the dead and continues to raise people from the dead, even in the most unlikely circumstances, even across the world, where to accept Jesus is to put a target on your back. The power of God revealed. And this revelation not only gives hope, but it also is a call for those who have rejected Jesus to die to themselves And live under the gracious rule of Christ. I realize that sometimes my preaching can be like drinking from a fire hydrant. And so this quote is a little bit like drinking from a fire hydrant. So bear with me if you can. But I thought it was very helpful what the Dutch theologian Herman Ritterboss said about this passage as I was wrestling through it, wrestling with the text. Listen to what he says here. John does not present this judgment to his readers as the unalterable end of the decree. Rather, he rather cites from Scripture a prophecy that comes to full significance in the rejection of Jesus. John seeks to picture, I think this is good, John seeks to picture before the world's eyes and cause it to experience the futurelessness of its existence apart from him is a final call to return to him. Did you catch that? He wishes to put before their eyes a picture of the futurelessness of a life without Christ so that they may repent and turn to him. John is an evangelist. He proclaims the good news of Jesus. The good news, the gospel, is for the world. It's news for all to come and find life in Jesus no matter your history. Come to Jesus and find yourself outside of yourself in Jesus Christ. Because our text today in John 12, the text that Jeff so beautifully read, does not end with unbelief, but it ends with the public ministry of Jesus, which is the proclamation of himself. It is a proclamation of who Jesus is. He is the one who represents God, who speaks on behalf of God, and who brings God's light into the world. He is the representative sent by the Father and the representation of the Father. To see and believe in Jesus is to see and believe in the Father who sent him too. While to reject his word is to remain under judgment, he did not come just to let everyone know that they are condemned and will be condemned. No, he came because he loves the world. He came so that we might have life and life in him, so that we might be fully human, so that we might have life, eternal life now, and forever in communion with God. And his word at the last day will serve as judge. That's what he says. His word will serve as judge, meaning that how one has responded to his words determines what judgment will be passed. And because his word is the word of the creator and sustainer of the world this word can be trusted it is true but but for those who have given themselves to Jesus who have died to themselves and who now live under his lordship his kingship what a glorious day that will be oh That day, when freed from sinning, we shall see his lovely face. Clothed then in blood washed linen, how will sing his sovereign grace. So come, my Lord, do not tarry and bid our ransomed soul. Away, Send thine angels that are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Send them now to come and lead us to realms of endless days. Church, in chapter 12, Jesus is staring into the darkness, and the darkness is staring back. And everyone who reads this chapter must sooner or later make up their minds as to what side they're on. Everyone must answer the question, who is Jesus? John was asking his listeners that question, and he's asking us the same question today. Who is Jesus? Amen.